You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day... Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Don't put your Bible away. We're going to do a lot of, we're going to have a Bible workout this morning. So if you're a fan of that kind of thing, uh, then prepare yourself. If not, it gives you blisters on your thumbs. Uh, I don't know, get, get them warmed up because we're going to be flipping around in our Bibles a little bit this morning. If, if Jesus showed up to have a conversation with you, We're going to go fantasy here for a little while. Jesus shows up to have a conversation with you. What would you want him to talk about? You've got a seven-mile walk somewhere. You're not quite to Kellerton. You're going to go down to P64. You're going to take a seven-mile walk down Highway 2, and Jesus is going to walk along with you. What do you want him to talk about? What do you want him to talk about? 
Maybe you'd like him to give you specific life insights, right? Uh, maybe tell you what decision you need to make next. I've got this going on in my life. I hope he talks about what's going on in my life. Maybe he'll give you a bunch of affirmations, tell you how great and special you are and just kind of build you up with lots of positivity. I'm sure we'd all have lots of questions we'd also like to ask. Not only would you want, what would you like him to say, but what would you ask him? You'd have all kinds of questions if, if, if he showed up and you didn't know it was him. Let's, let's, so let's say you're walking in. This is all if you knew it was Jesus. But let's just say you showed up. You're walking. Jesus joins you to walk with you. What would you like him to say? What would you expect him to reveal? What would you think he'd want to talk about with you? What would Jesus want to say to you if you're walking somewhere with him? You don't know it's him. But here is his opportunity to face-to-face to speak with you after his resurrection. What information do you think would be most important for him to tell you. Well, in our text this morning, a couple of the disciples get this few minutes, right? They're on this seven-mile walk to Emmaus. It's a famous walk to Emmaus that's referred to going on an Emmaus walk as a thing people talk about. Uh, But here they are on this walk to Emmaus post-resurrection. And what Jesus finds to talk about is fascinating. Because of all the things that you'd think you'd like to hear, and probably Cleopas and whoever was with him would like to hear all the questions they might like to ask him, what is Jesus going to find important to talk about? What topic will he pick? So this is not the walk to Emmaus this morning. This is the talk to Emmaus. There's two, there's two things. going. This is not the walk to Emmaus. This is the talk to Emmaus. What is going to be talked about. What is Jesus going to say? If I have these minutes with these people to impart information to them, what is the most important thing they can know? What is this, the content of this talk to Emmaus? Well, many Christians throughout the years have speculated, right? I mean, we don't have the transcripts. It might be nice. I wish my sister was there with the stenography, you know, or a little stenography machine and taking notes about what in the world's going on uh, and, and we could have the transcript of, of everything that Jesus shares. We just get the summary statement. Jesus walks them through all that is written in Moses and the prophets. So when he talks about the things that are written in Moses, they're speaking there the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Pentateuch 5, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all that was revealed a point to him in Moses and the prophets. And that really is shorthand for all that was a way that they would refer to back in this time to all of what we now call our Old Testament. That would have been summarized by saying he walks them through the Old Testament, all the things concerning himself. The shorthand back then was to say all the things in Moses and the prophets. So we focus right there on verse 27, just a a pivotal verse in, in the narrative here. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's Jesus going to prioritize they need to hear about post-resurrection from him? They need to hear all that the scriptures say about Jesus. 
I want to, before we launch into what those possible passages could have been, I want us to, to make a, a, a firm note of that reality. This is where Jesus goes. Where does he turn? He opens up his Bible. He says, when he has the chance to communicate them some truth from himself, he opens up Moses, he opens up the prophets, and he shows them all the things that are in there that speak about the reality that show, show that Jesus was the Christ. What's incredible about this is this, Jesus is God. What he speaks, we talk about the passage in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos. It is breathed out by God. The, the, the scriptures are, very, are the very words of God breathed out by him. But Jesus is speaking. Everything he says then by default is theonoustos. It is breathed out by God. He could have said anything. But on this walk, what does Jesus decide to do? He points them back to the written revelation about God. That God has his ways of communicating to his people. And he has always been about writing these things down. You go back to Moses on the mountain with the Ten Commandments. God has been about writing these things down so that we might know him. And that, I don't want us to miss that point. When you want to hear from God, when you want to hear from Jesus, when you want to know what's going on, the place that he's always going to send you is to his written revelation. It is to his written word about himself. We're so eager in our day. We hear this kind of talk, hearing from God. We want to hear from God. We want to, we want to make sure we, we know what God wants us to do. And lots of different things are meant by that. Sometimes we just mean a sense of peace, maybe. I just want to feel peace about it. I want to hear from God. I want to have an internal peace. Sometimes we mean, you know, a certain strong leading. Some people might mean an, an actual, like an inner voice that they hear. Some people might actually think they want to hear audibly, want to hear God say something. There's all the whole gamut of a desire to hear from God. But there's this common search to hear from God. And often this desire to hear from God is so that he'll answer some pressing question about themselves. But this is all because we all too often, I mean, that's, that's the question we want God to answer. Something for me. Jesus points back to the scripture and what's he going to show in the scripture? How, who he is. The most important thing for these disciples walking down the road is that they're pointed back to the scripture and what they need to hear most of all is the reality of who Jesus is. And that flies against all that we desire because what we want from, to hear from God is how to handle the minutia of our life. My little daily details, what, what the things I, I, my next decision, my next move, my next whatever conversation, what's my next week going to look like, what am I supposed to do next in the next six months of my life, go here, go there. We want God to speak in these ways. Jesus shows up, certainly could have done that for Cleopas and the other disciple, but what does he think is most important? That if he can speak to them, it is that they would see Jesus for who he truly is Revealed in his scripture. That is the most important word that they are going to hear. 
We often consider ourselves as the most important individual in the universe. And God must be waiting with bated breath to just tell us all the important, tell important us what we must do. But that is not what Jesus does. Jesus takes this opportunity and he goes to the written word of God and he shows how that written word of God speaks of himself. He shows how that written word of God speaks of himself. So not only do we need help in knowing where to go for our information to hear from God, but we need help in realizing that the most important things you can hear from God are not the things concerning the minutia of your life, but the grand realities of who God is. That's a, that's a humbling reality. That what you desperately need is not direction on all of these, these little things that are, that are important. I'm not saying they aren't major things going on in your life. But all of those things are secondary to this great reality that you see Jesus for who he really is. Knowing all this then, that's exactly where Jesus goes. He takes these two disciples and begins to walk them through Moses and the prophets, showing them all that points to him, which makes us then ask the question, what would he have spoken of? And we can't know for sure because it's not, we don't have this transcript, but knowing the specifics is beside the point because what Jesus is, the point he is making is that this whole thing is about himself. This whole story, this whole narrative that is life as we know it on planet Earth, the center of that existence is Jesus. So I promised you a workout. We'll eventually get there. Go to Genesis chapter 3. That's, the, that's an easy one for you to find. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis, the first book of your Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This is often called the Proto-Evangelion or Proto-Evangel. Um, Proto-Evangel, this is the, the, the first. Proto meaning first and Evangel meaning good news. This is the first good news. It comes in the midst of the cursing of Eve. We've got the after the fall, post-fall, there's there's, there are these curses that come down. And God in cursing, or not cursing Eve, cursing the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, being Satan, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Okay, singular, and, and there's, there's much made of that, but not her offspring and your offspring. And what about this singular offspring of the woman? He shall bruise your head, that's a defeating blow, and you shall bruise his heel. There is this coming descendant, this coming seed from the woman, this descendant 
who is going to crush Satan eventually, but in the process of it, he is going to be bruised on the heel. He is not going to come out unscathed. Something is going to happen. This, he's going to be victorious over the serpent, but in the process, he is going to be injured. Now, it's not an injury that's going to take his life ultimately, right? Because you can get bruised in the heel and it hurts for a while, but you recover from it. That's what this is speaking about. This is the proto-evangel, the proto-euangelion, the first mention of this good news. Someone is coming. And Jesus likely would have taken them to this conversation here. Go back to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to fly through a few of these. Genesis 22, I don't like have, all I have is the scriptures on this. I don't like have any notes on it. So that either, either means it's going to go super fast or I'm going to get really bogged down in it. So we're going to try to just, we're going to try to just flit over the top of all of these passages. But Genesis 22 is the, the offering of Isaac, right? We have this incredible picture. We could have done more up leading up to this, but here's this incredible picture of this son who's going to be offered, the son who carries the wood up his back, up the hill, carries the wood, they lay it out, and Abraham lays him down and is ready to kill him. And in what happens, Abraham, Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 11, receives him back from the dead because he considered Isaac as good as dead. But God, God stops his hand before he sacrifices Isaac, right? And there's a ram in the bush that, is, that comes out and is sacrificed instead. And, and God, they name the place, the Lord will provide. Because in this whole narrative, we see this giving of this loved son. Isaac is, is Abraham's loved son. There is the giving up of him, the death of him. The Lord, though, provides the sacrifice and the son comes back. And all of this is, is, is uh, foreshadowing of this son who is going to come, this son of promise, who all the nations of the earth is going to be blessed. There's going to be this death and this resurrection. An amazing picture with Abraham and Isaac there in Genesis 22. We didn't read it, but it's a long narrative. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to take it up. So that's, those, those are just two places in Genesis. We could have talked to Joseph. We could have talked many other things. But let's skip down to Exodus chapter 12. This is the Joseph, the, the people of Israel go into Egypt. They become slaves. And now Moses is raised up as a deliverer, a, for, a foreshadowing of Christ himself. Moses delivers the people of God out of bondage into freedom through the baptism in the Red Sea. But here we are in Exodus chapter 12, this famous passage of the Passover, right? So Exodus chapter 12, again, a large passage. Uh, there is the, the plagues are coming. The, the judgment is coming upon uh, Pharaoh and Egypt. And so, chapter 12, verse 1 of, of Exodus, page 63 of your Bible. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It should be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's household, According to the father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, 
put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw. Let none of it remain until morning. Verse 11, this is how you eat it. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judges, judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is all a foreshadowing of this land. Remember John the Baptist when they are, he's baptizing his disciples, and he says in the Gospel of John, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is this coming Passover lamb whose life has to be given. His blood is shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin, Hebrews tells us. And so here he is, Jesus walking down with Cleopas saying, that Passover lamb, that's really about me. That offering of Isaac, that really is a foreshadowing of me. That first, that proto-euangelion, that first gospel, that really is about me. Same thing in Leviticus 16 is the day of atonement where we have this incredible picture of a sacrifice of, of, a, of a goat, a sheep, a sacrifice in the temple. And then we have the scapegoat, right? Where the sins of the people are laid upon this goat that is then sent outside of the camp. And where does Jesus die? Outside of Jerusalem. He is sent outside of the city walls to die. This day of atonement, this scapegoat, is a foreshadowing. Jesus walking with Cleopas, get on the walk to Emmaus and hear the talk of Emmaus. All of that pointing to me, Jesus says. I knew I'd run out of time. Numbers 21, the bronze serpent. Jesus himself quotes uh, from the, uh, mentions this in John chapter 3, famous John chapter 3 for verse 16. You know, uh, the, the, he's quoting from this, this section where there is this bronze serpent that if, if it's lifted up, anyone who looks under the bronze serpent will be saved. Fascinating story. They're bitten with disease. They're dying. Moses crafts this bronze serpent. If it's put up on a pole, anyone who looks upon this one who is lifted up is saved. Jesus says that really is about me. As he is the one who is lifted up, everyone who looks to him will be saved. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, read that on your own. Let's go to the prophets. Isaiah 50 speaks about this humble sufferer. The humble sufferer, Isaiah chapter 50. That's way more back here in the middle. We didn't have time to do nearly as many as would have been fun to do. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. This is fascinating. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This servant of Israel, this servant who is coming, he doesn't, he gives his back to those that strike. And my cheeks, Jesus is walking along with Cleopas and this other disciple. And he says, remember that passage in Isaiah 50? about the, turning his back and getting struck and his beard being plucked out, not, not hiding his face from disregard and spitting. That was about me. That's, that was about Jesus. That was about this Messiah. He doesn't reveal himself yet. But all of these things he's saying had to happen. Isaiah 53, the ser suffering servant, just incredible. But we can look at just verses four and five. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken. Jesus certainly esteemed stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. People thought he was cursed by God. That's why he's hung on this tree. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That passage, she is the saying, is about this Messiah, this, this Jesus that Cleopas and the other disciple were following. We, Micah 5, 2, he's going to come from Bethlehem. Zechariah 9, 9, he's the humble ruler. Zechariah 12, uh, 12, 10. Uh, well, I have through 13. Oh, yeah, through the end of end of chapter, the beginning of chapter 13. All of the end of chapter 12 of the book of Zechariah, they'll look on him who they've pierced. These prophets all have these these, and Jesus is walking through saying all of this, all this language, they're talking about Jesus. That's Zechariah 12, verses 10 through the first verse of chapter 13. That was, that was flying. Why does Jesus walk the disciples through these scriptures? He's wanting them to see that this Jesus that they're following, he is not just the savior of their little kingdoms and their little plans. He is the king of the entire scope of reality. He's not just this, this king who's going to come to redeem Israel. He's going to get rid of the Romans. We're going to have our nice little Davidic kingdom. And we're going to have peace again. We're going to have the, the peace of Israel. Is what we're going to, that's what Jesus is going to provide. That They're caught up in, in Jesus fixing their little narrative. And Jesus is showing to them, listen, this Jesus that you follow, he's not just the center of some little story. He's the center of the whole thing. This Jesus is the center of the whole story. That's what he's getting at. Jesus is way bigger than what they are giving him credit for. He worked through the scriptures to show them that this Jesus they were following was not just the Savior bringing about the world that they wanted, but that he was the Savior bringing about the world that God has purposed from the beginning. The story is much larger than what they were thinking. Jesus is the center of the story. That's what he's showing them. And this reality is just as important today. We live in a culture that is constantly wrestling with this idea. The question we have to face, is Jesus recognized as the center of our story? If he's the center of the story, that means he's the center of every story. He is the center of every story. Is he the center of your story? How does he become the center of your story? What does that look like? Does this mean that we, everywhere we go, we carry our Bibles and try to make someone listen to us read a passage of the Bible? Does this mean we're always constantly trying to make someone pray with us? Or do you mean we always wear a Jesus shirt and we cover our cars with Jesus bumper stickers and, and just constantly, uh, our, he's the center trying to put out this external display of Jesus being the center of our story. What it means, no, I guess the answer to that is no. I mean, you can do those things. I'm not opposed to you doing that. I mean, I guess that'd be kind of interesting what you'd come up with. Uh, but I'm not opposed to those things. But that is not the, the heartbeat of what's going on here. What it means to have center Jesus as the center of your story is it means treasuring Jesus above everything else. Treasuring Jesus above everything else. It means that if anything in your life competes with what you know Jesus is asking of you, that competitor loses. 
Because he's the center of the story. Not my desires, not my wants, not my wishes, not my plans, not my purposes. He is the center of the story. He's the center of my story. And that means that whenever, whatever competes with him loses. Whatever competes with him loses. It means that when you are convinced that, that we are, he loses. When we're convinced that we're the center of our stories, we're told by various voices that we're the star of our own narratives. When we buy into that idea, then religion, any spiritual pursuit, becomes an investment in getting what we want. The, so the Christianized version of this is you basically think Jesus is available to make all your dreams come true. We're pro-Jesus. What we often mean by that is he can help me get all the things I want. Jesus really helps me live my story. And what Jesus is on this walk with is to say, this is not, he's not here to be a supporting role in your biopic. He is the center of the story. What does this look like? You work hard to remember that when things do go well, your joy is not in those things. He is the treasure. Jesus is the giver of all those things. But when things are well, you think about, if I were to lose all these things, I have not lost a thing because I have Christ the treasure. You hold the things of this life with a loose grip. Whatever competes with him loses. Whatever is good, you hold with a loose grip. It means that when things go wrong, they're not going well and they go wrong, you remember all that you have in Christ who has given you the greatest gift of all, which is himself. It means you don't get caught up in having life your way. You settle yourself and letting God have his way, knowing that you have him. Why would we put Jesus at the center of the story? I mean, it's, it's more enjoyable, I suppose, at some level to just live under the delusion that you're the center of your story, make it all about you and march, march away. Why would we put him at the center of our story? Because he really is. That's what he's proving. That's what he's walking them through. He's saying from the proto-euangelion, from the first words of scripture, from the first man and woman on the planet earth, Jesus has been the point. He is the, why, would he, why should he be the center of the story in your life? Because he is the center of the story. That's the point he's making on this walk and talk to Emmaus. We should put him at the center of the story because he is the center of the story. And we should put him at the center of the story because he's proving. He's proving that as all of these passages have pointed, passages have pointed to him and he's fulfilling them, he is the God who accomplishes his purposes. He makes good on his intentions and promises. Promises for the good of those who are his through faith in him and his work. As the center of history, he was there at creation. He worked this plan of redemption and he will one day work the goal of the consummation of all things. Why put him at the center of the story? He is the one that can truly bring about your final and full satisfaction forever a satisfaction that is found in him alone. He's the center of the story. Is he the center of our story? So we come to communion. It's our chance to say, and if every one of us, if we're honest, has to be able to look back at our week and say, I can count on my hand many times that my world was not Christocentric, it was Darren-centric. That's idolatry, sin. God, forgive me. Forgive me. I am so grateful 
that Christ came to take sin upon himself so that I can be forgiven of that transgression, be made right through faith in Christ, and then pray, Father, as I receive this forgiveness, work your sanctifying work in me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit that I would walk out centered not around myself, but around the real center of the story, around you and Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would do this supernatural work. This is not something as dedicated as we may try to be and as bullheaded as we may be, as stubborn as we even may be to try to accomplish things. This is a work of the Spirit of God. And I pray that that work would happen in our hearts, God. Deliver us. Deliver us from the evil of self-centeredness. God, and orient us around the true center of the story. You, your son, Jesus Christ, your plan of redemption, bringing all of those lost sinners back to yourself. Center us, God, there that our joy in you would be full. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.